Take your Bibles. Turn to Psalms 39. We are in week five, five Sundays in this month. And uh, we've been looking, just walking through the Psalms. Uh, and I, I love the Psalms. I love them because uh, they're different. One of the reasons I love them is they're just different from the rest of the Scripture. Uh, and they're different in the sense that they are more... Uh, emotional they are more they they appeal to the heart more than they appeal to the head they're not that they don't appeal to the head but so much of the other scripture is teaching and it's giving us information and this one is just from the heart filled with emotion and, and just appeals to that more heart aspect of of us and, and so I, I i love it and we've been looking at them over the last couple of weeks and uh it's one of the reasons why the, the Psalms are so great to come to when you are in emotional times, because they kind of hit us at that level, and why when we are stressed or, or, or we're scared or we're hurt or some way, a lot of times we gravitate toward the Psalms, because that's where we are. We're kind of in that raw emotional state, and the Psalms kind of speak to us uh, during those periods of time. And so today we're going to pick up, and we're going to look at Psalms 39. Now, this is like... So many of the other ones, if not all the other ones that we've seen, this psalm is written by David. And it's written in, in uh, all the psalms, often, uh, most of them anyway. David wrote like 73 of the 150 psalms. But about, right above verse 1 of the psalms, if they know who wrote it, there would ascribe somewhere along the way, they'd be put a little note there that this was a psalm of. And they'd put it there. If they knew the occasion in which it was written, they would put a little note there. And so... A lot of times, unlike other books of the Bible and chapters of the Bible, you'll see this little kind of uh, footnote at the top of each psalm kind of giving you a little information. And this one says it's a psalm of David. David wrote the psalms. And then it goes on and says, for, it'll say, of David, for, uh, some Bibles translate the director of music, some will say the choir director, the choir master, uh, Jedithun. Now, this guy was a guy who was em employed in the, in the, in the palace, I guess you could say, of David. He worked for David, and his job was that he was the director of music. He would take these psalms that David would write, and David would write the lyrics of them, and his job was then to put music with them. And so they kind of collaborate on a song. And, uh, you know, the Academy Award, they both would come up for, for best songwriter and, because they both would work together. So David was not so much one that would write music as he would write lyrics. And often he would write the lyrics of these psalms, and then he would turn them over to someone that would then put music to them, and they would use them in worship, and they would use them just in the palace and in ceremonies, and this is one of those occasions. Now, this psalm was written, like so many of them in David's life, it was written during a time where he was stressed. We don't really know what it was, but he was stressed. He was anxious. He was anguished, as he would say. And, and he just kind of lets the emotions fly with that. So we look at Psalms chapter 39, pick it up with verse 1. It says this. I said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I will, muzzle on, I will put a muzzle on my mouth while in the presence of the wicked. So I remain utterly silent, not even saying anything good, but my anguish increases. Now, this is interesting because this is kind of when the, the wisdom of David kicks in. Older in life, he's seen a lot of things, he's made a lot of great decisions, he's messed up some things, and he's just learned through all those things and just cultivated, cultivated wisdom through the years. And this is one of those moments in where just out of his wisdom, he understands what's the right thing to do. And this is what I mean. 
David gets it. That whenever we are stressed, whenever we are angry or, or hurt or broken or scared, those high emotional moments put us in a place of vulnerability. We become vulnerable. We become emotionally vulnerable. And when you are in that state, there are two very dangerous things that you can do when you're emotionally vulnerable. Two things that are just fraught with a lot of potential danger. And they are that. They are, one, you can make a decision. One of the worst times to make particularly a significant decision, an important decision, is in those moments where you're just, you're stressed, or you're hurt, or you're angry, or you're scared. There's just so much potential disaster that can happen there. The second and equal with that is just to speak. One of the most dangerous things that you can do when you're emotionally vulnerable, when you're angry, when you're hurt, when you're stressed, is to speak. And David gets this, and this is huge. David basically is saying to us that the the first thing that I commit to when I am angry, when I'm hurt, when uh, when I'm stressed, when I'm vulnerable, the first thing I commit to is I shut my mouth. In fact, he says it so strongly, he says there in verse 2, I remain utterly silent. That, that's a word that would be equivalent to a, an English word when we used to use the word dumb, not in the sense of a lack of intelligence, but when you're talking about someone having the incapacity to speak, someone that just couldn't physically do that. David is basically said, I make myself, it's not just that I choose not to speak, but I, it is, this is such a visceral response, this is so... I'm so committed to this. It's as if I've lost the ability to speak. That's how much this is a priority in these moments of vulnerability. I, I make myself where I choose not even to be able to speak. He states it. I don't know if there's in any stronger way he could state it. Of his priority of not speaking, of being incredibly, and to be measured is almost too light of a statement. To be measured of the words that I speak when I'm in that vulnerable state. Because David gets what I'm afraid a lot of us don't get. And that is just the the power of our words. The words we speak, in, in modern day times you'd have to include the words we post. The words that flow out of our life into the atmosphere and the environments that people around us are in are incredibly powerful. You know, I equate them often to like morphine. You know, morphine has the potential to to heal, but it also has the potential to kill. And David is wise enough to know that in moments where something or someone has brought you to a place where you are emotionally vulnerable, that is when the chances are astronomical that you will say, yell, post the wrong Do we get that? Well, let me ask this. If before I read that and made that statement, if you were to come in here and I would have asked you, hey, you know, what do you think? What do you think King David is going to encourage us to do first? What's the first thing that he's going to bring up that he does? And therefore, encouraging us in that. The first thing that he does when he is hurt, when he's angry, when he's stressed, What's the, what do you think the first thing he says? Here's what I do. What would your answer have been? I think a lot of us, especially that it was in church, said, well, you know, he, to pray, that's the first thing. You've got to pray. And that, I mean, that's an incredible answer. Absolutely, that is one of the things. 
that you should put high on your priority list when you are stressed, when you're vulnerable, when you're hurt, when you're angry. Some of us would have said that. Some of us would have said just ch- stay calm. We just got to stay calm. We, we don't need to go overboard. We just, we got to get, we got to calm and know that God's in control. Some of us might say, hey, well, the first thing you got to do is just walk away from the situation. You just walk away from whatever it is that's causing you to be so emotionally vulnerable, the situation or the person. You got to get away from it. You got to create some space there. Some of us might say, well, you just got to ask God for help. You got to ask God for help. We listed several things, but I have a feeling that we wouldn't have given first the answer that David did. And I think that is just because we have, we have an inability to understand just how powerful and how potentially both helpful, but how potentially destructive our words are to ourself and to the words of the people who are around us. Because David's first thought, when he sits down and begins to pen, when he's stressed, obviously in here you'll find out that he's anguished, that there's somebody that's causing that in this particular moment. And when he sits down, this is what I will do. I will march my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I'll put a muzzle on my mouth while I'm the presence of the wicked so I remain utterly silent. I act as if I don't even have the ability to speak. David gets... That in those moments that we are vulnerable, we have the highest likelihood to say something so painful, so hurtful, so extreme, that we ultimately later regret it. And I say this all the time. You can live with a lot of things in your life. One of the worst roommates you will ever have in your life is regret. And that's why... When we open Scripture, it's not just in David's words, but when you open up Scripture, you find in so many different places this kind of going back up again and again and again. Listen to this, in fact. Solomon writing, Proverbs 21, 23. The one who guards his mouth and, and, and tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Proverbs 15, 1. A gentle answer turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. Jumping on the New Testament, James wrote, James chapter 3, verse 5. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. And I love this statement because it's so true. Consider how great a forest a small fire ignites. So we've, we've seen all the story from California and other places where someone just threw out a careless match or a careless cigarette and what started so small turned, in something, turned into something so destructive. So the same thing. The words that come easily off our tongue, especially in moments in which they, we are stressed, we are angry, we are hurt, and thus we are emotionally vulnerable, seem like little things. We forget them quickly. But they have the potential to create great destruction in our life and the life of other people. Psalm chapter 64, verse 3 says this. Who sharpens his tongue like swords and aim bitter words like arrows? Who does that? Who sharpens their tongue like swords? Who does that? We do. When do we do it? We do it in those moments that we are angry, we're hurt, we're broken, we're scared, we're stressed. In those moments in which we are emotionally vulnerable. David
David understands that. And so he, he, he announces to us, this is what I do. He's almost inviting us, hear what I do, hear how significant this is. It's like David understands how easily we don't think that's a, a significant threat in those moments of emotional vulnerability. If you've been around me long, you will hear me say this, that the only time, the only time you have full control of your words are before you speak them or post them. The moment you cast them out in one way or another, you lose all control. See, you can speak what you want, but what you don't have is you don't have control how I will interpret them. You don't control how I respond to them. You don't control how many times I will repeat them. You don't control how I might change them intentionally or not. Maybe it's just the way I perceived and remembered them through my perception. But you don't get to control how I perceive them and, 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 and thus might change them a little bit because I think that's what you said and then repeat them and yet still give you the credit for those words, whether you want it or not. You don't control how hurt I am by your words. You don't control how angry I get by your words. And you don't control how long I will remember those words. This is why careless words, especially in moments of emotional vulnerability, when we're hurt, when we're angry, when we're stressed, when we feel defeated or we feel violated or we feel threatened in some way, those moments... Careless words can be so destructive. David gets that. And he says, you know, I get it. When I'm at that place of emotional stress, like I am right now, when he's writing this, like I am right now, the thing I must never forget is to do all that I can, put as much energy behind as I can to remain silent. To be as speechless as I possibly can. Because in those moments, every time I open my mouth, the potential is at its greatest for me to say something I lose control of and causes hurt and havoc in ways that ultimately I regret. David gets that. So he says what? I will put a muzzle on my mouth. I will remain utterly silent. He goes on. Verse 4, he says this. Lord, reveal to me the end of my life and, and the number of my days. Let me know how short-lived I am. You, indeed, have made my days short in length and my lifespan as nothing in your sight. Yes, every mortal man is only vapor. How depressing he is, right? Well, David is acknowledging in, the, in those verses, he's just acknowledging his frailty. Right? He's acknowledging his smallness. In, in one way, he's acknowledging his, his insignificance in the grand scheme of things. And you know why that is so good, and I, I would even say important to do occasionally in our life or often in our life? It's because, follow me here, the only time you really will turn consistently to God is when you know you need him. And the only real way to consistently know that you need him is to have a clear view 
of just how small your life really is. To have a clear understanding of really how insignificant your life is in the scheme of things. To, to understand how frail your life is. See, when I, when I have a clear view of, of, of how small my life is, how really in the scheme of things, I'm just but a, I'm just but a small piece of dust on this earth, which dirt, earth is just a, a piece of cosmic dust in the universe. When I really begin to understand how insignificant my life in the scheme of everything, I begin to understand I need somebody that's in control of all this because I'm not. I need someone that has, that, that has the wisdom that's bigger than just this little piece of dust of me and the little small mind that I have. I need someone who is the host of the universe. It's the king of all kings that is the creator of all this. I need him. Because on my own, I am so small and insignificant. You see, when I understand, when I get a clear view of how small I am and the frailty of my life and my days, then I understand my need. And I will turn around and I will need, when I know my need is when I turn to God and say, you and you alone are the one who can fill my need. So David spends a month just, hey, he could be king. Say, hey, look at me. And he could choose to just look at his position and his wealth in this world and just lean in that. In fact, this is why, if you notice, so many of the people who are rich and have power and position in this world live lives that are far away from God. And sometimes I'll hear people talk about that and say, well, they're their money has blinded them to, their, uh, for God, uh, to, to God. and their, their power has blinded them to God. Now, money and power don't ever blind you to your need for God. What money and power does is it blinds you to understanding and having a clear view of your own smallness, of your own, in, in the scheme of things, frailty and insignificance. You see, what happens is you, you, when you gain money and power, it's re- easy to start looking around at yourself and go, look, look how well I'm doing. People know my name. I can go here, I can go there, I can take this trip, I own this car and that car. So many other people don't. Look at where I live and look, and, and look, look at the position that I have. There's so many people that like to be me. And the more we have, the more we begin to think that our life is not small and insignificant and frail. We begin to feel significant about who we are and our life has stability and strength and those things. And what it does is it blinds us to God. It blinds us to our need. We may actually acknowledge that God is up there. And that, oh yeah, I need him. But I don't really go and I don't really act as if I need him. I acknowledge him. I may even call myself a Christian because I believe in what he did. And I need him for salvation. But when I live my everyday life, I don't live as a life where I'm saying, God, I need you in my life. I need your direction. I need your wisdom. I need you to make it through the day. I don't. Why? I'm blinded to God by my wealth and power? No. I'm blinded to my own smallness. I'm blinded to my own insignificance. I'm blinded to my own frailty. And when I don't see that, then I don't see my need for God because I'm doing all right on my own. And so David takes a moment, and he could have done this very thing. Because at this moment, the nation of Israel is hot, and it's powerful. The world is very small, and they're, very, they're a big fish in a very small pond at this particular moment, and it'd be so easy. He's not just king of a nation. He is king of the people of God. And it'd be real easy for him to lean into that for significance in life. Lean into that for security in life. Lean into that to, to really look and, and define who he is to himself. 
But instead, what does he say? He looks and says, Lord, reveal to me the end of my life and the number of my days. Let me know that I'm sh- how short-lived I am. You indeed have, have made my days short in length, and my lifespan is nothing in your sight. Yes, every mortal man is only a vapor. I'm not nearly as significant as it may seem. I'm not nearly as strong. I have a lot more frailty than what may appear. He's acknowledging that because what David understands the minute he loses a clear view of how small his life is, is the minute he loses a sense of how much he needs God. And it is that need for God that causes him to seek him, to rely on him, obey him, and love him. And so it's like he's saying, God, don't ever let me lose a sense of my own frailty. Don't ever let me lose a sense of my own smallness. Don't ever let me lose a a, a sense of how, in the scheme of things, on my own, how insignificant my life is. So that I may always lean into you instead of leaning into me. Then he goes on in verse number 7 and says this, But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was silent. I would not open my mouth. And look at this phrase. For you are the one who's done this. Verse 10. Remove from your scourge, remove your scourge from me. For I am overcome by the blow of your hand. When you rebuke and discipline anyone for their sin, you consume their wealth like a moth, Surely everyone is but a breath. Now, he just kind of laid out, I understand my smallness. I understand how insignificant I am. I understand my own frailty in the scheme of things. And he says, God, help me. My hope is in you. Help me, God. And then he goes on and makes these interesting statements where he says, for you are the one who's done this. And he says, I'm overcome by the blow of your hand. He's laying the, the, what he is going through, the, the anguish that he's going through, the, the difficulties. He's laying it and said, it is the cause of God. God, you have brought this on me. Now, there, there's two possible reasons for this, and it may be both reasons. One of the reasons he may be seeing this way is that David actually knows an area of his life where he has just walked away from God, where he's been disobedient to God. He knows it, and for whatever reason, somehow he's made the connection, and there's no doubt in his mind that, that, that God has responded to that. The holiness of God has responded to that. The discipline of God has responded to that, and he is facing some difficult moments of life because of that. And there's a difference. God does discipline, but there's a difference between discipline and punishment. Understand that. When we're in Christ Jesus, God disciplines us. He doesn't punish us. Discipline is, the end result of discipline is always to try to get a person to change behavior for their benefit. It is to satisfy a desire for the person that is the subject of discipline to be successful. I'm going to do what I can to kind of move you away from the direction you're going in and moving you toward an area, not where I'm more successful, but where you are more successful. That's what discipline is all about. Punishment is is backwards looking. Discipline is always forward looking. Here's where I want you to go, and I've got to get you there. Punishment is backwards looking. This is what you've done, and so therefore you must pay the penalty. And, and so God is always a God that disciplines his people. He's always forward looking, and he brings things in our life that may be painful to move us to where we will be successful. It is forward looking. God is not a backwards looking God in which he punishes us just to be able to make us feel the pain because of something we've done. 
And so David, in this case, maybe one reason that David's saying this is because he understands that he's facing the discipline of God for something in his life. The other reason, and both these may be true, is that he's a Jewish man. And one thing that is not so much like us that, that, that the Jewish people were about is that they had such a strong view of the sovereignty of God so much so that they saw everything that happens ultimately is because of God. Good or bad, they gave God the credit for everything. And, because, and this is why. In their view, God is sovereign over everything. Therefore, God causes things. But even if God didn't cause it, he could have stopped it. So therefore, ultimately, he's responsible for it. So he did it. In a Jewish man's mind, he would say, if I went out here on a road and I got hit by a drunk driver... Well, God directly didn't cause that because drunkenness is a sin. God doesn't encourage us to sin. And so God didn't cause the man to get drunk and get in the car and hit us. But under a Jewish mindset is God is ultimately, he could have stopped it. God is sovereign over everything. So under God's sovereignty, he didn't stop that from happening. So ultimately, God did cause it. And so it's just a mindset they had because of the strong and high sense of sovereignty they had of Jews. Now, both of these could be true. Both of them could be the fact that He's going to automatically say, God, you caused this because of who he is. But it also may be true that he's looking at something particular in his life. And he knows, no, this is happening in my life because God is, trying, is disciplined. God is trying to move me in a new direction. And, and in this case, he's using pain to do that. And he's asking God, come on. Come on, God. Come on, God. I want to move. Remove this from me as all of us would pray when we're in pain like that. And he goes on in verse 12 and says this. Hear my prayer. Lord, and listen to my cry for help. Do not be silent at my tears. And I love this. For I am a foreigner residing with you. A temporary resident like all my fathers. Turn your angry gaze from me so that I may be cheered up before I die and am gone. Here's what we got to take from that. David... It's just kind of focusing on an aspect of God. And that is that God is holy. And we must never forget that there is not a second of any moment, of any hour, of any day of the year that God is not fully and completely, totally, completely holy. God is holy. And, and one thing that God's holiness does is God's holiness is always offended by sin in our life. God's holiness is always repulsed by sin in our life. God's holiness is always angered by the sin in our life. It is so opposed to holiness. Sin is such the opposite that it, it is like the, the positive and negative ends of a, of a magnet. They just can't even come in, in contact or near each other. They repulse, they repel each other. That's what God's holiness is to sin. And the sin in our life is offensive to God's holiness. It is repulsive to God's holiness. It, it pushes away God's holiness. That's why he says in this verse, I am a foreigner residing with you. I am so different than you. I'm nothing like you. I'm a foreigner here. I don't belong here. Why? Because you're holy and I'm not. And my, my sin in my life repulses God. The sin in my life angers God. The sin in my life separates me from God. That's why, you look what he says. He says, turn your angry gaze from me. Because why? God's holiness is offended by our sin. And it 
uh, God's holiness is angered at any sin. It's not just your Any sin angers the holiness of God. This is why if it wasn't for the cross, we'd be doomed. Because God is incapable of being unholy. God is incapable because it's who he is. It's not something that he does. It is who he is. He is always holy. And his holiness is always going to be repulsed by the sin in our life. And David is acknowledging that. And there's moments in our life that we can kind of feel that. There's just something in the residue of God and all of us that are created by him. We kind of inherently know that. We feel this, this pushback when we look and think about the sin and the ugly things in our life. We feel that. And sometimes I, I talk to people so often, many times people will not even come to God, not come to Christ. I had a man one time, early in ministry, that wouldn't even come, that became really good friends, was not a Christian, would not come into the church building because he'd say something like this, the building will fall in if I walk in because of the things that I've done. He didn't necessarily have a wrong view. He only had a half a view of God because what he had clearly understood was the holiness of God. He understood that there's this condemnation that God has because of his holiness for sin. And that is true. But it's very destructive if you only know that aspect of God. Because there's another aspect of God that is equal to his holiness. If not, when you look at scripture, it's the other aspect even has a little advantage over God's holiness. And as God is not only a God that is holy, he is a God that is full of grace. And his grace doesn't cancel out his holiness His grace doesn't overshadow His holiness. His grace doesn't cause His holiness to go, oh, we'll just look that over. His grace comes in when His holiness says, this must be condemned. And His grace says, yes, but I can't lose Him or her over this. His holiness says, this is wrong, and there must be an accounting for all sin, for I am holy, and I can't even, it says His holiness burns away sin. I can't even be in the presence of sin, so it must be held into His account. And His grace says, yes, but we must not lose Him. We must not, I can't handle, I can't comprehend, I will do whatever it takes to not lose them to what they've done. And that's why we have the cross. Because it's the one place in history that humanity saw God's holiness and His grace fully on display. There are times in the Old Testament where we see God's holiness on display. There's times in the New Testament we see God's grace really on display. But then there's those, that moment where we see equally God's holiness and His grace fully on display. For it's because of God's holiness that we had to have a cross. Because His holiness demanded, demanded that sin be held account. His holiness said it cannot be overlooked, it can't be discounted, it can't be ignored, it can't be written off. It must be punished. It must be held into account. And his grace was fully on display in the sense that it was not you hanging on that cross. And it wasn't me hanging on that cross. But it was he himself 
hang on the cross. Because where his holiness was not diminished at the cross, where his holiness at the cross said there must be an accounting. I remember, I always liked the movie uh, National Treasure. At the end of the treasures, the guy says, uh, anything that you want, the guy who found it all, and anything you want, he says, I really don't want to go to jail. And the guy says, Ben, somebody's got to go to jail. You know, somebody may have said, Jesus may have said, the Holy Spirit may have said, I don't know, I'm just making this up, but someone could have said to the Father, I really don't want anyone to go to hell. I don't want anyone to have to pay for their sin. And the holiness of God would around and say, well, somebody has to pay for the sin. It's got to happen because I am holy. And that's when Jesus would step up and say, but the grace of God means we cannot lose them to this sin. And that is why Jesus Christ stepped up on that cross. In your life, every day, there are two things true about God. He is a God that is absolutely and always and is forever holy. And that means he will not overlook, he will not ignore, he will not say, oh, it's okay, you got more good than bad in your life, it's fine. He will not do any of that stuff. He will look at you and he will say, I will hold you accountable to your sin. Sometimes in our life as followers of Christ, he will bring that in the form of discipline to get us moving in a new direction. But ultimately to every person, every human being, he says this, everyone that he created. He said, Your sin, my holiness demands an accounting, but I refuse to lose you to that unless you choose to pay for it on your own. I refuse to let you lose, to, lose you to that. And so he stepped up on that cross in your place. And it's because of God's grace that there is always redemption. There is always a second chance. There is always the opportunity for a new beginning. For as Paul put it, in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. Yes, His holiness will condemn your sinful behavior. But His grace is there to remind you that He never, ever, ever, hear me on this, ever condemns you. He loved you so much and wanted you so intently that he crawled up on that cross. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you are. I don't care what mistake you've made. There is a second chance. There is opportunity for, for, for redemption. And there's always an opportunity for a new beginning. Because there is no condemnation, though there could be because of his holiness. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ.